The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. The Kozlos were an upper-class socialite family well-known in the Fort Worth area, which is why their community was stunned when Jack and Karen Koslow were the victims of a brutal home invasion, leaving Karen dead and Jack critically injured. Authorities zeroed in on the two assailants and their alleged ringleader, Jack's daughter, who stood to inherit millions of dollars upon his death. But would prosecutors be able to prove their theory at trial? I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our original series, Accomplice to Murder with Vinny Politan, which examines cases where it's not so clear who exactly is the mastermind behind the crime. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Jack and Karen Koslow were a successful couple who moved easily within the elite social circles of Fort Worth. They seemed like a happy and successful family until a brutal crime brought to light a troubled past and a murder-for-hire plot involving two accomplices with the mastermind being someone from inside the family. Rivercrest is where all the old money is. Families who have been a part of Fort Worth for generations. Karen was very active in the social scene of Fort Worth. Jack was a banker, and he also was starting up a new business. Jack's daughter from a previous marriage, Christy Koslow, lived nearby with her mother, Paula. Christy spent time with both parents visiting her father and stepmother Karen on weekends and holidays. From all outward appearances, the Koslows were a happy and successful family. But then, on the night of March 12th, the police received an alarming 911 call from a neighbor. What then happened there, sir? I heard immediately that there had been uh, a major crime, a homicide in the Rivercrest neighborhood. There had been what everyone thought was a break-in. It was a man and wife, and they had been attacked. The first details we had were that a, a man by the name of Jack Coslow had run to a neighbor's house. He was described as being distraught, very bloody, obviously injured, asking for help. We were told that there was another victim inside the residence who was dead. As day broke, Crime scene investigators were only just beginning to grasp the sheer scale of violence that had been committed. This was a really complicated crime scene, very bloody, blood basically all through the bedroom, all through the house. It was an extremely violent attack. Both Karen and Jack Coslow had been beaten with a crowbar, basically is what it was. Their necks had been slit. This type of crime just 
captivated the whole city. Everyone wanted to know what in the world happened to Jack and Karen Koslow. How could this happen? There's a lot of public pressure on the police. Solve this crime. Solve this crime. We want an arrest. And the longer it goes without an arrest, the more pressure the police department feels because everyone is wanting to know, is this some deranged killer that's stalking people for no reason? Or was there a motive and are we still in danger? Nearly from the beginning, there was some suspicion on whether Mr. Coslow had something to do with this. Jack Coslow was obviously the first person that we wanted to talk to. He survived and his wife Karen dead, so we had to look hard at him. He was starting up a new business. People wondered whether or not he wanted money from her family to help start his business. Investigators began to treat Jack Coslow as a prime suspect in his wife's murder. One reason was the attackers appeared to have had inside information about the Coslow's security system. When the suspects came in downstairs, they had the alarm code to shut the alarm off. And then a forensic dentist from the medical examiner's office found what he identified as a bite mark on Jack's hand. That same forensic dentist told us that he believed it was a bite from Karen Coslow, that it matched her teeth. So when we got that information, we had to look even harder. By the time of Karen Coslow's funeral a few days later, the media was openly speculating that Jack was behind his wife's death and that an arrest seemed imminent. Jack Coslow came into the church on the arms of two men. Then the casket bearing the body of Karen Coslow was carried in. Investigators parked a surveillance van outside the church and homicide detectives were spotted nearby. We really didn't have a good alternative to him because nothing, nothing was leading anywhere. While covering what had now become a national story, Douglas was about to stumble upon the source of a lifetime. One day, I'm standing there just waiting for an update from police or trying to talk to neighbors, uh, and a young lady approaches me. She said, uh, my name is Christy Coslow, and it's my adopted father and stepmother who were attacked. Douglas would speak with Christy every few days. She would call me and ask, is there anything new in the case? I would call her maybe just to check the spelling of a uh, name of a family member. Meanwhile, the police were starting to question their initial assessment of Jack. After a second analysis, medical examiners walked back their initial theory about the supposed bite marks found on Jack. They weren't bite marks at all, but possibly defensive wounds against a sharp weapon. Days passed, then weeks. All leads the police pursued led to dead ends. They found no new evidence, no new suspects. The case seemed about to go cold. And then Paul Carrillo came out of the blue and really blew the case wide open. Nearly two weeks after the murder, a young man by the name of Paul Carrillo 
contacted the Fort Worth police. He called us and told us that he had some items that had been used in the commission of this offense. Carrillo said his friend Jeffrey Dillingham had shown him some items in the trunk of his car. Carrillo told us that Dillingham confessed that he did this. He said he saw a bloody jacket and he saw the pry bar that was used to beat Jack and Karen Coslow. Jeffrey Dillingham's name had not come up at all. Without that phone call, uh, it would have been really hard to connect him to this crime. Police now had a prime suspect in the bloody murder of Karen Coslow. We learned that Dillingham was the assistant manager at a blockbuster video, which was over in Arlington, east of Fort Worth. On March 24th at about 12.30 in the morning, they arrested Jeffrey Dillingham outside the video store. To the surprise of investigators, Dillingham admitted everything. Jeffrey Dillingham gave a complete confession, a very detailed confession. It was brought to me by Brian about robbing the house is how it started. Dillingham told police that he had been recruited to participate in the robbery by his friend Brian Salter. He had a plan to rob his girlfriend's stepfather's house. When we return, Jeffrey Dillingham reveals Brian Salter's connection to the Coslow family. Do you know who his girlfriend is? Christy Coslow. Suddenly the attention turned to the daughter. Yeah, I was shocked. After the brutal murder of Karen Coslow here in the upscale Rivercrest neighborhood outside of Dallas, police initially suspected her husband, Jack, until a surprise witness guided them to a teenage suspect named Jeffrey Dillingham. Jeffrey Dillingham was a complete unknown. I mean, he was an honor student. Uh, his, his teachers liked him. It was just a total puzzle as to how this person could do this act. After being arrested, Dillingham gave a full confession. He initially confirmed what the police had suspected, that the original plan was robbery. It was brought to me by Brian Salter about robbing his girlfriend's stepfather's house because there was supposed to be four or $5,000 in cash in there. Then a bombshell. You know who his girlfriend is? Christy Coslin. Police had initially suspected professional criminals of being responsible for the robbery. But Dillingham's confession made it clear that Jack's daughter, Christy Coslow, was the actual mastermind behind the plan. Even more shockingly, he told police that while the plan was initially robbery, it eventually evolved into a much darker plot. Then it was brought up about killing the two of them so that Christy would inherit the money the estimate that was told me was she was at least supposed to get $12 million, and of which I was supposed to get a million dollars. That triggered arrest warrants for Christy Coslow and Brian Salter as suspects in this case, and they were both subsequently arrested. I was shocked. I wasn't scared because Christy never came across to me as the least bit dangerous at all. When investigators started looking at Christy, it became apparent that her relationship with her father Jack and stepmother Karen had become toxic. We learned that Christy had a troubled past. 
There was no question that she was a troubled teenager, that she had a lot of issues going on, but she had a lot of anger. She had a lot of hatred. The divorce between her natural parents had left both Christy and her birth mother feeling embittered. There was a lot of animosity on Christy's side, blaming Jack Coslow for the fact that Jack Coslow had basically abandoned them and married Karen. The media also began looking into Christy's story. We learned that she had approached other people to see if they would commit this crime. We were talking about uh, money or something, what we were going to do later on. She's like, you know, I could have all this money if, you know, someone, you know, killed my dad because I hate him. By now, law enforcement was convinced that Christy was the mastermind behind what now looked like a murder for hire plot. The case would have never happened but for Christy, but for her animosity, but for her hatred, but for her desire for money and her convincing the others that she would get money and they would benefit. It's mind-boggling that, first off, she could come up with this plan and then convince these two guys to actually do it. Nothing about either Jeffrey Dillingham or Brian Salter suggested that they had the motivation or the brains to plan such a cold-blooded plot. They were just way above their heads in doing this. They were two guys that were following the directions of a pampered daughter of a well-to-do family. The police felt they had their mastermind, but there was just one problem. She wasn't at the crime scene. She distanced herself. She was the most difficult case of the three. We really wanted to get to her. So thus, we were willing to roll Dillingham. We were willing to roll Salter to get to Christie. With overwhelming evidence pointing to Christie as the mastermind of her parents' murder, prosecutors take aim at her two accomplices to build their case against Christie. Jeffrey Dillingham is first in their sights. Robert Mayfield was a very aggressive prosecutor, very passionate about doing this. A prosecutor, when they have multiple defendants, always wants to try their best case first. It's kind of the tumbling dominoes theory. You get one to tumble, and then they all start to tumble. Dillingham was obviously our strongest case because of the confession and because of Paul Carrillo. Considering the strength of the evidence against Dillingham, the prosecution thought offering to remove the death penalty would be enough incentive to flip him against Christie. We approached him and offered him life imprisonment, which would mean a minimum of 35 years, if he'd turn evidence. If he'd agree to plead guilty to capital murder, take the life sentence, and then roll over on the others. But he wouldn't do it. Once Dillingham declined the plea deal, Mayfield's aim wasn't just to find Dillingham guilty, it was to get a death sentence. I honestly believe that Jeffrey Dillingham was a sociopath. This was such an egregious, bloody, horrible crime. If someone is capable of that amount of violence, they simply forfeit their right to continue to live among us. Mayfield had a more strategic reason as well. A death penalty would help us move further up the chain and would possibly flip Salter. He was the conduit from Christie to Dillingham. Dillingham had very little contact with Christie. 
So Salter was the key. We needed Salter to enhance our case against Christie. But to get to the mastermind, Mayfield first had to convict the accomplice. On August 2nd, 1993, Jeffrey Dillingham went on trial for the murder of Karen Koslow, facing death by lethal injection if convicted. Ladies and gentlemen, you will hear the facts of the crime itself through an audio taped confession. This defendant's own words, his own voice, will tell you how he planned the crime. The whole purpose of that opening statement was, look, we have a tremendous amount of evidence. This case is over before it even gets started. The most damning evidence against Dillingham was his taped confession. The prosecution called as a witness the detective who had interrogated Dillingham. Did you have a conversation with Mr. Dillingham concerning the murder of Karen Coslow? Yes, sir, I did. I began taking an audio tape-recorded statement from Jeffrey Dillingham about what had happened. Then, the entire recording of Dillingham's confession was played for the jury. It was brought to me by Brian Salter about robbing his girlfriend's stepfather's house. When you hear this kid talking to a homicide detective and kind of laying it all out on what happened, it's chilling to hear this kid's voice. Brian's the only one I talked to. I've only seen Christy twice. Me and Brian sat down and we talked about it and what days it should be done and how. Jeffrey Dillingham said Brian Salter had met with Christie to review house plans that would help them evade the home's sophisticated security system. Christie supplied diagrams of the house, uh, alarm code, what rooms had motion detectors, what rooms didn't. Early in the morning on March 12th, Jeffrey said he and Brian pulled up to the front of the Coslow's house. He first scaled the gate in order to help Brian to force it open. The door started to give way. I pushed, it snapped, and I asked Brian if he was sure if he wanted to do this. Brian then disarmed the alarm to the door leading into the house before Jeffrey says he kicked in the door and they both entered. Finding the bedroom door locked, he kicked it in as well and found Jack running for the closet and Karen terrified on the bed. When Karen Coslow started screaming, Jeffrey started hitting both Karen and Jack with a crowbar. And then Brian Salter moved in and attacked them with a knife. Then, a gun that Brian had been carrying accidentally went off. I started freaking out. I told him we need to get the hell out. We ran downstairs. We ran out the door that we came in. We ran down the street. In addition to Dillingham's own words... Mayfield made sure the jury heard from those who witnessed the aftermath of that night's violence. The importance of the wounds was to show the violence of the crime. This was a frenzy of violence. There were smears, what appeared to be smeared blood along the south wall of the hallway. What happened when you walked up to the body? When we turned the body, I noticed what I would consider a mortal wound on her neck. Attending physician showed me several blunt trauma wounds on the back of Mr. Coswell's head. The skull was cracked open and you could see the bone fragments uh, down close to his brain. 
But the prosecution's key witness was the man who had somehow survived that frenzy of violence, Jack Coslow. Jack's testimony was very, very important. It was, it was crucial. We couldn't have done it without Jack's testimony. It just talked about the rapidity with which they got into the house and got to the bedroom. I remember hearing Karen uh, and looking over and seeing, seeing her sitting on her side of the bed uh, yelling, they're in the house. Was your bedroom door locked? Yes, it was. Okay, and what happened? Uh, how did it get open? Well, one of the individuals kicked the door in. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been on the other side of a door that has been kicked in, uh, but all of a sudden, it's just like an explosion. Pow, that door is just flying open and uh, crashing into uh, the desk. It just happened to be uh, on the other side of the door jam. The other thing that Jack helped us with and was crucial was just the sheer violence. I remember you know, him hitting me with a hard object. And I can remember just the whole world going black and then seeing stars. And then I, you know, here it would come again, pow. You know, he would hit me across the back of the head again in black and stars. And then I would hear or feel, bam. My, you know, face and head would go into the floor. What was the next thing that you remember? I remember waking up. Um, I remember looking around the room and seeing Karen lying face down on the floor a couple feet from me in a pool of blood. I got off the floor, I went over to her, and knelt down beside her, put one hand on either side, on either shoulder, and tried to lift her off of the floor. And when you went to her and, and tried to lift her, uh, uh, did you see any sign of life in her at all? Did you no, no. All I remember is that she was covered in blood. Mayfield believed that Coslow's testimony and Dillingham's own words were enough to convict the accomplice. But his next witness was aimed squarely at the mastermind. Our picture was, was very fuzzy and unfocused as far as Christie went. We knew she had a motive, but we didn't have anything getting us there. Once Paul Carrillo gave us the story, then, then we had our case. Mr. Carrillo, would you please say what Jeffrey Dillingham said to you as you were riding together in a car sometime around March the 12th, 1992? Jeff asked me uh, how I had been doing. Uh, and what did you respond? I responded that I had not been doing very well. Uh, in response to which he replied, well, I've had a worse time. Uh, and said that he had killed someone. Jeff went on to say he needed me to dispose of some things. I asked him what. And he replied with... weapon he used in the killing. They had to consciously assemble this murder kit. They had to think about, okay, I'm gonna have to use this pry bar to open the outside door and the bedroom door. And this pry bar will also make a weapon. This wasn't something that happened on the spur of the moment. I got angry and I did something. This took a lot of forethought. 
Coming up, the defense tries to shift the conversation to Christy Coslow. I would assign the order of evil as Christy Coslow being the most, as Brian Salter being secondarily, and as Dillingham being third in line of responsibility. Jeffrey Dillingham gave a damning confession to his role in killing Karen Coslow while being interrogated here at the Fort Worth Police Department. That confession and the brutal nature of the crime meant his attorney faced an uphill battle. Jack Strickland was an excellent criminal defense attorney. He was probably by reputation the best known of all the criminal defense attorneys in Tarrant County. You think of your bed as being kind of nurturing and safe and comfortable and you set aside your worries until you wake up in the morning and suddenly there's these two people in the house. The alarm hasn't gone off. They're awakened from a sound sleep. This is everybody's worst fear. We thought that we would be fortunate if we could get life on this case. The prosecution had asserted in its indictment that it was Dillingham who used a pry bar to deliver the fatal blow in the attack on Karen Coslow. Ladies and gentlemen, the next witness to be called by the state of Texas is the chief medical examiner of Tarrant County. We had charged that the death event was caused by hitting Karen Coslow in the throat with the pry bar. What she had associated with this injury was, in fact, a fracture of the larynx. Was there some pooling of blood in these organs? Yes, sir. Is that consistent with your finding that room number 13 was actually the cause of death, the blunt force trauma of the throat? Yes, sir. The defense ran a very technical strategy of it wasn't the pry bar that killed her, it was the throat cut that killed her. We retained maybe the, the, the most prominent forensic pathologist in the, in the United States. I'm a forensic pathologist and I am the uh, medical examiner for Ector County, which is the county in which Odessa is here in Texas. It was a battle of the experts and I put my money on the expert that we had retired. Is it within the realm of reasonable medical probability that the cut wound could have caused the death to the exclusion of the blunt force trauma? In the absence of the blunt force trauma, I believe that the cut wound would have been fatal by itself. And would have, in fact, caused death quicker than the blunt force trauma. Is that correct? In my opinion, most likely, yes, sir. Strickland also called a psychologist to testify to Dillingham's history of mental illness. How long did you meet with Jeff Dillingham on that first occasion? It was approximately two and a half hours in the morning and approximately two and a half to three hours in the afternoon. What he said, how he said it, the emotion and lack of emotion. Uh, he was found to function with uh, various personality characteristics that are called personality disorder. First of those was dependent personality. They were trying to show that Jeffrey Dillingham had a dependent personality disorder, that he was dependent on others to tell him what to do. He was not a leader. He was simply a follower. Because of his dependence, his need to be reaffirmed or approved of by other persons, uh, his judgment at times is, is uh, impeded. He knows something is good judgment, but he won't do it because he wants to be accepted by a significant person in his life. What I was hoping to achieve by showing his character was that this was an aberrant act by him. But for Salter and Christy Coslow, 
They would have never, never been involved in something like this. And in cross-examining Jack Koslow, he took every chance to talk about who he believed was the real mastermind, Christy Koslow. It's the old dead fish in the courtroom. You, you want your co-defendant to be the dead fish that's stinking up the courtroom. You don't want to be the one doing that. I talked about Christy. Number one, to talk about anybody but Mr. Dillingham. Number two, to demonstrate that the animosity went back sometime between Mr. Coslow and his daughter. Based upon what you know of Christy, do you believe it likely that she harbored a grudge toward you and a grudge toward Karen Coslow? It was obvious to everybody that the child needed some help. We spent a lot of money and a lot of time with counselors, uh, but she just never developed, and I couldn't tell you why. Number three, to try and elicit from him some indication that, but for her and her personality and her arguments with Mr. and, and Ms. Coslow, that, but for Christy, none of this would have happened. Strickland also made sure the jury didn't forget the other accomplice in the crime, Brian Salter. Mr. Salter was a more sophisticated, more intelligent culprit here. But Mr. Dillingham doesn't excuse him in the slightest if it can be shown that he himself is being taken advantage of by Mr. Salter and Christy Coslow. All the better. You're able to form any opinion of Mr. Salter whether or not he appeared to be as bright as Christy. I guess you always form opinions of people when you meet them. And Mr. Salter gave me the impression of, excuse the term, a slug. Jack Koslow's own testimony supported the defense's view that Salter was calling the shots the night of the murder. When I ran by him, I could also see him turning and interrupting his yelling to listen to some instructions from another person that was standing behind him and deeper into the hallway. Jeffrey Dillingham faced the death penalty for his part in the murder of Dallas socialite Karen Koslow after turning down a plea deal that would have given him life in prison with the possibility of parole in exchange for his testimony against Christy Koslow. His attorneys could never convince him. It may have been part of that sociopathic personality of his. He just thought he was more clever than others and that he would somehow survive this. Dillingham's attorney, though, said it wasn't his personality. It was his parents. He said they convinced him to go to trial after Strickland mentioned they had an expert who would show that it was Salter, not their son, who had been responsible for the deadly blow. They seized upon that like a dog on a bone, and they would not talk about anything else from that point forward except how that was going to exonerate their son. But as the trial wore on, the enormity of his crime and the precariousness of his situation seemed to dawn on Dillingham. Trials have a way of making you understand that this is no longer a game. He demonstrated that to an increasing degree during the trial. He cried, he sobbed, he laid his head on the desk. He wasn't faking that. You don't want somebody to be cold-blooded, but you don't want somebody to be, uh, be, be you know, auditioning for a... <laughs> you know, for a TV event there. I don't think it helped him. While the trial lasted nearly two weeks, it took jurors only hours to decide whether Dillingham was innocent or guilty. 
My recollection is that the verdict was not that long in coming. Has the jury reached a verdict? Yes, we have. Is that verdict unanimous? Yes, sir, it is. Would you please hand the charge to the bailiff? Cause number 30364A, the state of Texas versus Jeffrey Dillingham. We, the jury, find the defendant Jeffrey Dillingham guilty of the offense of capital murder as alleged in the indictment. Signed, four person. Does either side wish to have the jury polled? Guilty was the verdict we anticipated 100%. There was no reason for us to lose that case. The fight was going to be in punishment. For Mayfield, a verdict of guilty wasn't enough. Our goal was not achieved at that point because if he had merely gotten a life sentence, then that would not have created as much incentive for Salter to roll over. To convince the jury that Dillingham deserved to die for his crimes, Mayfield framed him as a cold-blooded contract killer. Primarily, what we're dealing with here today is, is specifically contract murder. Robert Ressler was part of the FBI profiling department. He said that contract killers were the most dangerous type of killer because they didn't need a motivation other than money. So anybody could be a potential victim of a contract killer. Did you come to a conclusion as to whether or not, in your opinion, this particular defendant is likely to be a danger at the present time? That's correct. Is that your opinion? Yes. Okay. When it was Strickland's turn, he needed only one thing to save his client's life. Really, what you're hoping for is one vote. One vote that says, no, I don't think we ought to execute this young man. That's just it, pure and simple. Any of the times that you've been with Jeffrey, have you seen anything, have you heard anything from him that caused you concern? No. Ever seen him exhibit any violence? I've never seen him at all. In fact, he's quite the opposite. Ever even heard him speak in such a manner that indicates a propensity toward violence? No. Mr. Dillingham did not have any sort of significant criminal history, either juvenile or as an adult. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not Jeffrey could be expected to commit future acts of violence against that smaller society, that prison society in which he would find himself? Yes, I do have an opinion about that. And what's the likelihood of that? It's improbable. The probability is that he would not commit a violent act in that setting. The only thing I ask of you is please save my son's life. He's my only child, and I love him dearly. Let's get one thing straight as I begin. I make no bones about this. I'm here to ask you for the life of Jeffrey Dillingham. I do that without reservation. I do it without qualification. I do it without any apology to you. I do it with absolutely full confidence that the evidence and the law, the testimony of the witnesses, the facts of this case mandate that decision, mandate that judgment by you. Just as passionately as Strickland argued for life, so too did Mayfield argue for death. We had a jury consultant, and he told us, make them see a grave in their minds that will bring it home to them. At 2 o'clock in the morning before the argument, it came to me how I could do that. There's a monument to this man's greed. 
in Fort Worth, Texas. A monument to this man's grief that embodies what he was willing to do for one million dollars. And that monument reads, Karen Courtney Coslow, 1951 to 1992. That's the monument to this man's grave. After Jeffrey Dillingham was convicted of capital murder and the death of Karen Coslow, the jury now had to decide whether Dillingham deserved to die. Their answer came after just three hours of deliberation. Mr. Houston, has the jury reached a verdict? Yes, we have. Did you hand the charge to the bailiff, please? Do you find that there is a sufficient mitigating circumstance or circumstances to warrant that a sentence of life imprisonment rather than a death sentence be imposed? In your verdict, you will answer yes or no. Answer no. This charge is signed for person. Special issue number three, no. It's mandatory that the punishment in this case be death. The court will now assess your punishment. Jeffrey Dillingham, having been adjudged by the jury to be guilty of the offense of capital murder and it being mandatory that your punishment be death, it is therefore the order of this court that your punishment shall be death and that before the hour of sunrise on a date to be determined by this court, you shall be caused to die by intravenous injection of a substance or substances in lethal quantity sufficient to cause your death and until you, the said Jeffrey Dillingham, are dead. Despite all the heartwarming things that people said about Dillingham, the jury still couldn't overlook the fact of what he did that night. He's your prisoner, Sheriff. I think we fought very hard with what we had, but you know, you can't make up evidence. You can't make up testimony. You can't undo what's happened. You still don't view him as a future threat? No, I do not. Uh, we, we're not just mouthing words up there. We, we believe strongly in our case. We anticipated that this would be the verdict because of the, the facts of the case. We think it's the appropriate verdict under the circumstances given the brutality of the crime. You cannot ask a jury to deliver the death penalty and not feel emotion. I mean, I was overwhelmed by emotion. When you hear the death penalty pronounced, it's a life-changing event, but it's the right thing. One person paying extremely close attention to Dillingham's fate was Brian Salter. I think Dillingham getting the death penalty made Salter think, I'm not gonna get out of this. I'm caught in the middle. I'm right here stuck between Christie and Dillingham, and they've got the goods on me. He had the good sense when he saw what had happened to Mr. Dillingham to say, you know, I'd like to take that deal now. And he took it and he pled guilty. With Salter as their star witness, Mayfield finally had the person he felt most responsible for Karen's death in his sights, Christy Coslow. She set everything in motion, but she wasn't there. That's a difficult task and we knew it was a difficult task. We knew that the odds were greatly against us getting a death penalty in that case. But our belief was this was a heinous crime. Let's send it to a jury and let the jury decide. Christy Coslow's trial drew even more media attention than Dillingham's. And it too hinged on her confession. 
The confession was a kind of a two-edged sword. She did admit to saying she hated Jack and Karen. She said, well, maybe I gave them the alarm code and maybe I gave them the layout of the house, but I was just mouthing off. I was just a mad teenager. I, you know, I'm just a scatterbrained girl. Her defense lawyers thought all the way down to how she was going to appear. They actually dressed her in sailor suits, making her look as juvenile as possible, as young as possible. Christy had a talent of coming across as being someone who really didn't mean for all this to happen. She was just joking when she said she wanted it to happen. She was kind of a pudgy girl who just, frankly, didn't look like a capital murder defendant. But she was, in fact, a capital murder defendant, and a capital murder would not have taken place but for Christy Coslow. After a trial lasting eight days, the jury did ultimately find Christie guilty. But instead of death, they sentenced her to life in prison. Knowing everything I know about the case, they all should have got the death penalty. If anybody was going to get it, they should have all gotten it, especially Christie, because without her, this doesn't happen. The fact that the other two didn't get the death penalty, just a little arbitrary. I thought the death penalty was inappropriate for Dillingham. In light of the sentences for the other two, yes, I did. But of course, Dillingham had his chance not to sign on for the murders to begin with. Dillingham chose to go to trial, and a jury gave him the death penalty. Salter was given the same offer that Dillingham was given. He chose to accept the offer. Christie was tried to a jury, and the jury decided life. I have no issue with anything that occurred there. After spending seven years on death row, Jeffrey Dillingham was executed on November 1st, 2000, at the age of 27. These were his last words. I would just like to apologize to the victim's family for what I did. I take full responsibility for that poor woman's death, for the pain and suffering inflicted on Mr. Coslow. Thank you, Heavenly Father for getting me off of death row and for bringing me home out of prison. Amen. Christy has spent the last 29 years in prison and she will be eligible for parole in 2029. We reached out, but she declined to participate. Brian Salter is still in prison and will be eligible for parole in 2028. There you have it, another deep dive into a truly fascinating case. You can find more episodes of this Court TV original series on our website, where they are available to stream for free. Just check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, tune into my other show, Closing Arguments, every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading, and as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.